Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 23, Greco-Roman Christianity. Life for the Greeks continued on more or less as normal under Roman rule. The Roman citizens took hold of Greek culture and adopted it as their own. They studied the Greek languages and dressed like the Greeks, and they even studied the ancient Greek myths. It is believed that the Romans took the legend of Troy and wrote their own city's history into it, claiming that the refugees of Troy traveled to Italy and founded the city of Rome. In 44 BCE, Julius Caesar commissioned the reconstruction of the city of Corinth and rebuilt the holy temples and brought it back to the glory before the sack in 146 BCE, nearly a hundred years before. In 11 BCE, Augustus constructed the famous Gate of Athena in Athens. Many emperors contributed to the construction of temples and colosseums and racetracks in Greek cities. Emperor Nero attended the Olympic Games and even managed to win in every single competition. Now, because I know who Emperor Nero was, I picture this Olympic Games to be similar to the Olympic Games if they were held in North Korea, with Kim Jong-un performing in every event and winning gold in every single race. Pergamon was eventually transformed by the Roman Emperor Trajan into a metropolis and funded huge construction projects with great amphitheaters and aqueducts and a city port. Pergamon became one of the wealthiest states in the Roman Empire. It quickly became the eastern Roman provinces that held the wealth as they were the end of the Silk Road and the trade with China propped up many of these Greek and Roman cities. However, we must address a very important time in history. If you are paying attention to the dates in this podcast, the years started around 1400 BCE and have been continually counting down ever since. Well, now the year is rapidly approaching zero. In 0 AD, Jesus Christ was born. At least it is supposed that he was born in 0 AD. I googled it and Wikipedia says he was born in 5 BCE. He was born in the Roman province of Judea and he started a following that spread like wildfire. In 30 CE, a remarkable thing happened that would change not only Greece, but the Western world. A young man named Jesus Christ was crucified in Jerusalem by the Romans for his political insurgency. His charge was claiming to be King of the Jews. Now what made this remarkable was a few of his followers claimed to have seen him alive after his death. Word spread orally person to person of this supposed resurrection. Soon the idea came to be that if one believed in the resurrection, then they too would be resurrected after their death. Around the early 50s CE, in the city of Athens, if you were walking through the marketplace at the right time, you might have seen a crowd of people gathered around a strange man with a long beard speaking to the crowd. He didn't look Greek, but he definitely spoke it fluently. 
The crowds around him were big, as everyone wanted to hear what this man was talking about. Now little did anyone in Athens know, but this man had been traveling across all of Greece, through Macedonia and Thessalonica, and finally down to Athens. He was stopping in every Greek city. He told the men and women, gathering around him, to stop worshipping these stone statues of pagan gods. Zeus, Jupiter, Athena, and Poseidon were not real gods, and they weren't going to answer their prayers. There was only one God, and this God cared about humanity. He was the only one worthy of worship. The one true God was all-knowing and all-powerful. But he cared about the individual soul. This man sparked the interest of many intellectuals in the marketplace. Now, The marketplace wasn't just a place to buy produce and salt. It was a communal square where people would meet and discuss hot topics such as politics and philosophy. As this was Athens and the center of the Greek world, the market was full of Stoics, Epicureans, and even skeptics. These Greek philosophers spent days on end arguing with each other over the laws of nature and humanity and everything that happened around them. In order to understand just who these people were hanging out in the Agora, I will describe to you the differences between the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the Skeptics. It all started after the death of Aristotle in 323 BCE, as he was considered to be the last great philosopher of ancient Greece. He was the last Greek philosopher of ancient Greece, and after him, the outlook on the world changed. After Aristotle, the Greek philosophy shifted from a cosmological perspective to a more personal perspective. Greek philosophers basically agreed at this point that the world was evil and wicked. After all, they had just experienced the Alexander Wars, the Wars of the Diadochi, followed by the Roman conquests, the Greek philosophers became more cynical. And the growing exception among the philosophers was the notion that nature was evil, and the world was full of it. But it was also a general understanding that humanity was somehow a little divine, for we were God's children, and could think our way out of nature, and therefore it was necessary to separate ourselves from nature as much as possible in order to free ourselves from this wicked and cruel world, because nature is scary. It was decided that, yes, nature is evil, and so is the world, and yes, we have a divine nature that barely elevates us above the animals. But how do we go the extra mile to separate ourselves from the cruelty of nature entirely? Well, there were three main thoughts on this. And they came down to the views of the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the Skeptics. Stoics believed 
The way to escape nature was through virtue. The Epicureans believed it was through happiness. And the skeptics believed it was through doubt. But let's break these three groups down a little bit further. What is a Stoic? Well, Stoicism was started by the philosopher Zeno around the year 300 BCE. It was a discipline of self-control and fortitude as a means to overcome one's destructive emotions. Stoics believed emotional responses could really get you into trouble, and it was important to curb these responses. Now, they weren't advocating for a complete shutdown of all emotion like the Vulcans in Star Trek, but they were encouraging people to transform their emotions by abstaining from the worldly pleasures and temptations. Practicing Stoicism was a means to bring inner calm, to bring clear judgment, and to free one from suffering. This was the ultimate goal of Stoicism. Stoics believed that impersonal forces created the universe and all that is. The world was governed by a pantheon of gods who were interventionists. They did not believe in any form of sin, but they did fear not living up to one's full potential. Now, the second group in the Agora were the Epicureans, and they were founded by a man named Epicurus. Around the same time as Zeno, his teachings followed pretty much the same belief. Nature was cruel and wicked, but he taught that in order to protect oneself against the world, one should not ask too much from nature. And this way, you can suffer as little as possible and enjoy as much as possible. But one should only take in pleasure in moderation. You see, Epicureans wish to live a life free of anxiety and pain, but their will to experience pleasure should not be mistaken for the lifestyle of a hedonist, whose beliefs were very similar, except there was no such thing as excessive behavior to a hedonist. A hedonist's life motto was, Eat today, drink today, love today, for tomorrow you shall die. The Epicureans also believed that the world was a natural phenomenon, and the gods did not create the universe. There was an all-knowing god or gods, but they were far above humanity, and they could care less about our miserable lives, and were therefore not worthy of praying to. Epicureans' only real goal in life was to avoid pain. Now, the third group present in the Athenian Agora was the skeptics. Now, there were two major factions within skepticism, the skeptics who followed the teachings of Plato and the skeptics who followed the teachings of Pyrrhus. The basics of the skeptic are as follows. It's impossible for a human with their feeble human brain to understand the complexities of the cosmos and the divine plans of nature. So why bother? It's far easier to sleep at night if you just shrug every wise man off as a crazy person. Doubt is the key to peace of mind. These Greeks were so intrigued by the words of this preacher 
that they wanted to hear more from him. They were already used to debating each other over the slight differences between the Stoics and the Epicureans, and they needed to hear more from this man so they could properly debate his ideas as well. They invited him out of the Agora and up to the top of the Areopagus, the Mars Hill. This hill was named after Mars or Ares because it was the very place that the gods tried Ares for the murder of Poseidon's son. This was a sacred hill. It was right behind the famous Acropolis and therefore stood looking over the ancient city of Athens and right next to the famous Parthenon. This hill had religious significance to the people living in Athens. This was a place where religious debate was prominent. The man walked to the top of the hill, surrounded by intellectual men of the Athenian Agora. This man's name was Paul, and he was a Hellenized Jew, traveling throughout the Roman Empire. Paul got up to the stone and looked down at the men and women gathering around him. And Paul said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through your city, I saw all of your objects and idols of worship. I also saw an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. To an unknown God. This was the inscription carved into stone nearly 600 years before this event before the Persian Wars in the 6th century BCE, probably around the year 500. A plague struck the city of Athens. And this was a brutal plague, comparable to the Black Death. It massacred the population, killing almost an entire third of the city. Almost everyone who became sick with it died shortly after. It was a nightmare scenario, as the city had just rid itself of tyranny and adopted democracy. And to be honest, it is probably the adoption of democracy that brought about the plague, as no one was voting to do sanitation work, and it quickly grew into a dirty cesspool waiting for disease to break free. And while everyone was dying in the street, and people were panicking in their homes, a famous poet had a dream. His name was Epimedes, and Epimedes had a dream that God spoke to him. God told Epimedes to walk down to the Agora, where he would find a lone flock of sheep. Epimedes was ordered to wait beside the sheep until they left the Agora, and he was to follow them until the sheep stopped. Once the sheep stopped, he was to build an altar out of loose stone and sacrifice one of the sheep. Only then would the plague subside. And sure enough, Epimedes awoke from his dream and headed down to the Agora, where he encountered a lost flock of sheep. And he did just as he was instructed in his dream. And he followed the sheep until they stopped. And Epimedes built an altar out of stone, slaughtered one of the sheep, and burnt its body on the altar. The sacrifice to the unknown god worked, and two days later, the plague in Athens was gone. 
This story was already very famous amongst the philosophers in Athens, and many of them had debated over just who this unknown god was. Paul was claiming that this unknown god was the same god of Jesus, the same god who sacrificed his only son to save all mankind. Paul used this story on purpose to spark a further debate among the intellectuals of Athens to talk about the Christian God. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Paul continued, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served with human hands as if he actually needs anything from us, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they seek God. If they reach for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. As even some of our own poets have said, for we also are his children, being then. We are the children of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, some image formed by art and thoughts of man. God is declaring to men that all people shall repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed by raising him from the dead. Now, at this point, many in the audience sneered and scoffed and stood up and walked away from this crazy man speaking of resurrection. Now, we do not know if these were the skeptics or the Stoics or the Epicureans, but we do know they could not listen to any more of this nonsense. They had to leave. But many more stayed, and some grew even more interested in what Paul was preaching to them. They wanted to know more. Some of these people joined Paul and followed him on his journey through Athens to the other Greek cities. Paul was on his way to the city of Corinth, which had just been rebuilt only a hundred years before. There was already a Jewish temple in Corinth, which taught the word of Christ, and he was heading to them. But before he got there, he wrote them a letter. And this letter is now known as the Book of Corinthians, and it appears in the New Testament Bible. I get this verse from... BibleGateway.com, Corinthians 1, 18-30. For the message of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The world was a tough place to live in those days. People were continually visited with war, plague, famine, and pestilence. This new belief gave hope in at least best the future, eternal life after death. And because of this, the good news spread exponentially, convert to convert, place to place. The new converts wanted to know who this Jesus was, so stories about him were told from person to person, over decades, and in different lands with within different languages. In 55 CE, one of these converts, Paul, wrote letters to fellow believers, and copies of these letters exist today in the New Testament. These letters were written 20 to 25 years after Jesus' death. Paul never met the historical Jesus. He never hung out with him. He never sat at his feet listening to his teachings. Paul got his information like everyone else, oral tradition. Unfortunately, in all of Paul's writings, very little is told of the historical Jesus. That is what Jesus did. That is what Jesus said. Most of Paul's insight was the resurrected Christ and what that meant to him. In 66 CE, according to Josephus, who was a historian at the time, violence began at the city of Caesarea. The violence was provoked by the Greeks of a certain merchant house, sacrificing birds in front of a synagogue. The Jewish clerk of the temple retaliated by ceasing prayers and sacrifices to the emperor Nero. The tension escalated with tax protests and random attacks on Roman citizens. The Roman officials demanded the Jews to pay for the damages that had been done. 
The Jews mocked and refused the order. The Romans entered the temple and seized 17 talents from the treasury for compensation, which was a lot of money. The Jews reacted with great anger and violence. The Roman officials arrested a number of city leaders, had them whipped, and then crucified. Some of those crucified held Roman citizenship. The Jewish people went ballistic. Roman officials left the city for fear of their lives. The rebels then attacked the Roman garrison and overran them. Now the garrison sued for peace. They offered surrender if they could get unhindered passage out of the city. The rebels consented. However, once the Romans came out to leave, they were betrayed and all were murdered. Around the same time, the Sicarii rebel faction surprised the Roman garrison at Masada and took control. Also at about this time, tradition says that the, the Christian Jews fled to Pella across the river in modern-day Jordan. Roman troops were sent down from Syria to end the rebellion. They made it to Jerusalem and put up barriers to the city to prevent the populace from escaping. But for some unknown reason, they decided to quit the city and head for the Mediterranean coast. Not far from Jerusalem, at a place called Beth Haran, they were ambushed and suffered 6,000 casualties and many wounded. The worst defeat for the Roman army by a rebel force. With their success, the rebel army may have become overconfident, possibly thinking that God was on their side. They made the decision to go to the coast and attack the city of Eshkelon. This was a disaster for the Jews. The small Roman garrison was able to inflict the deaths of 8,000 Jewish militia. And because of this attack, the Jews who lived in that city were slaughtered by other non-Jewish citizens. After the Romans left Jerusalem, a provisional government was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. This lasted until the Zealots seized the temple in 68 CE. In 67 CE, Nero sent Vespasian and his son Titus to end the rebellion in Judea. Between the two of them, they had a force of 62,000 soldiers. Instead of going straight for Jerusalem and fighting what could be a very expensive, cost thousands of Roman lives and just lead to endless battle, Vespasian started in the north, in Galilee, and systematically, village by village, stronghold by stronghold, destroyed every last of the zealots and rebels, and punished the population of Judea severely. Galilee was totally subdued after several months. Josephus, the historian, estimates that 100,000 people were killed or enslaved. The result of the Galilean campaign, zealots and thousands of refugees fled to the sanctuary and protection of Jerusalem. All of these different factions arriving in Jerusalem created political turmoil, eventually erupting into bloody violence. Zealots were mostly made up of fishermen and other laborers. They were blue-collar working people. The provisional government was made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were elites, who didn't have to work. Having them locked together in the same city was a ticking time bomb. Now, the Idumeans entered the city and took sides with the Zealots. It now got so violent in Jerusalem that the former high priest was killed and his people suffered severe casualties.
A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. In late 68 CE, the Zealots seized the temple, putting an end to the provisional government. In 69 CE, Simon Bar-Giora, commanding 15,000 militiamen, was invited into Jerusalem to help against the Zealots. They were eventually able to take control after much bitter infighting, faction against faction fighting in the streets. There was no unity there. Meanwhile, Rome was having a civil war, and Vespasian was called back to Rome to be the new emperor. In 70 CE, Titus, who was Vespasian's son, arrived at Jerusalem and began the siege. Titus arrived coincidentally at Passover, and many Jews from across the land traveled to Jerusalem for the celebration. The Romans let all who came enter the city, but the Jewish visitors may or may not have known at the time that they were getting in, but there was no getting out. Titus's reasoning was, The more people who entered the city, the quicker they would run out of provisions. His entire mission was to punish the Jews for their rebellion and killing over 6,000 of his men. And he was going to punish as many Jews as possible. Within a short period, the first two walls were breached. The third wall was going to be more difficult. Meanwhile, inside of the city, there was more friction amongst the defenders. Some wanted to surrender while others wanted to keep fighting. The zealots were the ones who wanted to keep fighting. One of the zealots came up with a brilliant plan to save them all. If all their food and provisions were destroyed, then the people of Jerusalem would have no option but to trust in God. And then, because of their strong and unified faith, God would intervene and they would prevail. So, they destroyed all their food and poured out all their water. And then weakness and starvation came much sooner rather than later. After seven months of siege, the Romans breached the third and final wall. The Roman soldiers by now were very frustrated, angry, and bitter towards the defending Jews of Jerusalem. The carnage was extreme. According to Josephus, over a million casualties and close to 100,000 were sold into slavery. All the city walls were torn down. The beautiful second temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. Titus went back to Rome and left his forces to mop up the resistance. In 73 CE, the last stronghold to be crushed was Masada. In 70 CE came the next written story of Jesus, the Gospel of Mark. It is dated by scholars to be about 35 to 40 years after the crucifixion. The gospel was written anonymously by a highly educated Greek-speaking man. It was named after Mark, who was a secretary to Peter, about a hundred years after it was written. The author would have gotten his information from the stream of oral traditions that were circulating his church at the time. In 85 CE, the next two written accounts were Matthew and Luke, written in different cities by different authors, approximately 50 to 55 years after the crucifixion. Again, by an anonymous, highly educated, Greek-speaking Christian 
of a later generation. Matthew was named after a disciple of Jesus, and Luke named after a traveling companion to Paul. Scholars noted that Matthew and Luke got some of their sayings and deeds of Jesus directly from Mark's account. The two Gospels also shared a common source that was, that was not in Mark. Scholars call this source Q. They also each had different sources of sayings and deeds that weren't in either Q or the Gospel of Mark, and these sources were named M and L. In 95 CE, we get the Gospel of John, named after a disciple. It was written in another city by another anonymous, educated, Greek-speaking believer, 60 to 65 years after Jesus' death. There were many more Gospels written, but only four were selected to become Holy Scripture many years later. Because of the many streams of oral traditions and accounts of Jesus that were coming from many people, places, languages, and cultures, discrepancies were bound to appear, and they did. In today's Bible, the New Testament to biblical scholars and serious students is rife with contradictions, discrepancies, and historical errors. For one who wants to know about the historical Jesus, this may seem like a problem. Six different accounts. Paul's letters, Mark, Q, M, L, and John. If there are contradictions and discrepancies, then they can't all be right. At best, one of six could be accurate. But which one, and can you be sure of that? Does that mean discard them all as historical sources? No, we don't. Scholars have devised criteria to ferret out reasonable accurate accounts and sayings of Jesus. One of the criteria is to be multiply attested. For example, most of the sources tell of Jesus associating with John the Baptist, a fiery apocalyptic preacher. Because this was multiply attested, there is a stronger chance that Jesus associated with John the Baptist. The opposite is to this is the three wise men following the star of Bethlehem. The story is found in only one source, which would make it mm, unlikely to be true. These are just two of the criteria used. There are more, but these two help us with finding the historical Jesus. Uh, a little notation here. The canon, the Bible, was formalized as authoritative in the Second Council of Tulin in 692 CE, whereas the Catholic canon was formalized in 382 CE. The Gospels were written in Greek not Aramaic, which was Jesus and his disciples' spoken language. In our English translation of the New Testament, Jesus is called Jesus Christ. However, Christ was not his last name. It's a Greek word to translate the Aramaic word Messiah. Jesus' followers called him the Messiah, and the word Messiah then meant anointed one chosen and specifically honored by God in order to fulfill God's purpose and mediate his will on earth. A common understanding of the term was the king of Israel. King David was anointed. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, and so too his successors in his family line, the key to this widespread understanding of Messiah is the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. He promised that he would be a father to Solomon. In that sense, the king was the son of God. David is also told by God, Your house and your kingdom 
shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel chapter 17 verse 16. However, in 586 BCE, the Babylonians put an end to David's dynasty. The Jews at the time were shocked. How could this be? God promised. So they rationalized that this had to be temporary and that God would reinstate David's line in the near future. And from this time forward, the Jews were a conquered people. The Babylonians, the Persians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. This had to be depressing for the Jews. A holy people being ruled and subjugated by unholy people. An apocalyptic view of the future became very popular. And the view was that one day soon, when things couldn't get any worse, God would personally intervene and end this evil world and set up his kingdom. But did Jesus claim to be God? In the Gospel John he did. John was written 65 years after crucifixion. The faith story of Jesus' resurrection had already been spreading for decades. But this Gospel claimed that Jesus was claiming to be divine does not pass the multiply attested criteria because this claim appears nowhere in any other Gospels or the letters of Paul. So then it can't be part of the historical Jesus. In 132 CE, the Third Jewish Roman War began. What provoked this revolt? Well, there were religious and political tensions. The Romans had established a large military presence in Judea. They also built a new city on the ruins of Jerusalem and named it Aelia Capitolina. And on the Temple Mount, where the Second Temple once stood, the Romans built a temple dedicated to the god Jupiter. The Jewish leader Simon Bar Kokhba was regarded by many Jews as the Messiah, who would restore their national independence. His early successes against the Romans drew ever-growing support from the Jews, not just locally but from far away as well. He was able to rule a sizable area for about two and a half years. Things were really going well. The Jewish sage, Rabbi Akiva, called Simon the Jewish Messiah and gave him the surname Barkosabi. The Roman defeat made Emperor Hadrian send a very large army from all over the empire to end this latest and biggest rebellion. Troops from far away as Britannia, Spain, and the Danube. Now the Roman forces were double what they were during the first Jewish revolt. Their strategy was to advance slowly, methodically, by cutting the supply lines to the rebels. Eventually, the Romans had Simon Bar Kokhba and his army in one place, the Betar Fortress. The plan was to totally annihilate them, and after doing that, the Romans went on a rampage of systematic killing, eliminating all remaining Jewish villages. Many scholars actually call this a genocide of the Jewish people, and for good reason. As well as the terrible loss of the Jews to the Romans, the Greco-Roman population and the Christian Jews suffered great persecution at the hands of the rebels. After the war, this was the beginning of the Jewish diaspora, that is, the Jews leaving Judea for other lands. Some of these Jews traveled to Europe, others went south into Africa and Arabia, and others fled to the Persian Empire to live with the Parthians. And there are even reports to certain groups of Jews traveling as far as India to settle. 
Judaism went into decline after the Jewish-Roman Wars. The Christian Jews became more and more Gentile until finally they broke off from the Judaism and became their own distinct religion. Over time, Jesus was elevated from a Jewish Messiah to God Almighty himself. This put further distance between Christians and the Jews. The Jews thought the Christians were blasphemers. The Christians thought the Jews were Christ killers. These relations did not improve over time. Greece, due to missionaries like St. Paul, embraced the Christian belief, discarding their gods of old. It was easier to discard their old gods as they had abandoned them to the Romans. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome.